My name's Nathan. If you uh, didn't already know, didn't already know me, um, I am not the senior leader of the project. That would be the other guy. Uh, I am just filling in today and uh, and taking the opportunity to preach. So uh, we're in the Psalms at the moment. Uh, we've just been through Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us today, uh, we just hooked through the book of Ecclesiastes, which was really uh, impacting personally, uh, and and uh, talked. Help me understand uh, meaninglessness and, uh, and then to find actual purpose and direction uh, in life. The psalm that we're looking at today, uh, that we'll find out in just a minute, so up there, let me just check this clicker is working. Now we're on. All right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, is a psalm that in particular has impacted me um, but it, the idea around the psalm uh, has impacted me over the last uh, probably decade uh, in helping to understand, as a man in particular, what it means um, for work and uh, for work not to overtake me, but uh, for me to be, in some sense, in control of the work that I do. Anyway, that'll uh, unpack as we go. don't know if you've ever heard these words before. There's no rest for the wicked. Anybody heard that before? Uh, what a delightful saying. Uh, these words are straight from hell itself, I think. The wicked will be there and there will be no resting. That's uh, quite true. So the statement is true. Um, not an ounce of rest. Hard, laborious, unending work. Hot and sweaty work that will have no purpose because it will have no end. Uh, can you imagine this place? This may be uh, what's going on for some of you right now. Um, is that really something you would wish upon someone? Is it really like... Oh, no rest for the wicked, mate. Oh, gee. I, I struggle when I hear it. I walk away and, um, and I think about it. And I think, am I truly that wicked that I will find no rest? Like, is that really me? Or am I truly that stupid for not resting? <laughs> like, am I really that stupid that I'll go that hard and work so long that I don't even rest? Uh, what about this one? You're the master of your own destiny. Anybody heard that before? Yeah. Has anybody watched that great little film, Zootopia? Anybody seen that yet? Yeah. Uh, everyone's raving about it. Uh, we decided to have a look at it before our kids had a look at it. We've got quite young kids. And it's all the rage and all the, uh, you know, their friends and cousins are all wanting to watch it. So we thought, oh, let's just take a look at this. And this, this is at the very core. You can be whoever and whatever you want to be. Uh, you are the master of your destiny. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I would say yes, that is if your destiny is destined for the place I was just talking about. Work, 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 master, 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 it's me, my work, my mastery. Yet that great master is actually missed, the master by which you were made. If you have your Bible, can you open to Psalm 127? If you don't have a Bible, it would be marvellous for you to uh, have one. I'm going to have a look at a few different scriptures. <clears throat> Psalm 127. All right, let's read together. Verse 1. It's a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, 
Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb, uh, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior for the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I don't know about you, but I saw that, that, those two scriptures and I've always separated them. They've always been, all right, first section's about work and, and labor and anxious toil. The second one is about kids and how we should think about kids and children. Uh, but I am going to hopefully unpack that a little bit. Uh, one guy in particular I was reading brought this really sweet little connection, uh, which I'll show you a little bit later. But for now, let's get in at the start. Three things that I'd like to draw from the scripture today. Whenever you preach on a text, if you ever get the chance to, uh, there's always plenty more to be said. But these are the three that uh, I want to draw your attention to today. Number one is arranging your universe, building, watching, working and unresting without God. Number two, taming your self-will, building, watching, working and resting with God. And number three, rest for the wicked no more. Rest for the wicked no more. Number one, arranging your universe. There's a great problem in the West. We somehow think that the more we work, the more productive we are, the more productive we'll become, the better life will be, and the happier we'll be. More work for some may mean more dollars. You know, like in the trades, you can go to work, and the more hours you work, the more dollars you earn. You know how that works? Uh, Particularly if you're in your own business, um, the more time you spend working and the more people you have working for you, the more prosperous your business will usually become. Uh, This usually means more stuff, which apparently means more happiness. For others, more work means more productivity. Now, I'm talking about here where maybe you're on a salary, you're on a set pay, you're on set hours, and it doesn't matter how much... Uh, sorry, how many more hours you work, it doesn't mean more pay. Uh, so it may mean a little bit more productivity or it might mean a shift in whatever your workplace is doing, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean more money. Uh, <coughs> for you, it means more productivity, potentially, but not necessarily more pay. Apparently, though, less to do the next day. You know when you get to the end of your workday and you go, I'll just do those few extra jobs. I'll push the end of the workday out a little bit and, uh, and, and then I'll be less busy tomorrow. Like I'll have less to do tomorrow. Um, well, that's not necessarily true, right? Like usually you get up and you've still got a lot to do. <laughs> you've still got more work to do. The job list is still there and it keeps growing. Uh, it certainly means, in either of these cases, less rest and it certainly means we don't prolong our lives. Or does it mean that we're just obsessed with the present so much that we forget the future? Who really cares about the future anyway? Or is the future all we care about? Maybe having a sweet retirement with a sweet bank account full of money that you can spend on yourself. I've bought uh, today a bike, and for those at the back who didn't see, there's a trainer attached to the back of this bike. So the trainer basically elevates the back wheel and, uh, and it puts an extra little bit of resistance that pushes up against the wheel so that when the person riding it rides it, uh, they, they've got a bit of resistance so that they can work a little bit harder. I'm going to invite Caleb to come up. Uh, his older brother gave this a chop in the first round and, uh, and he did really well, got off puffing and panting. So, are you ready? Go. That's good. 
That's good. You can hear it riding pretty hard, right? You see the smile on his face? He's pretty excited. He gets to start riding, you know? It's like, yes! He's even lifting that trainer thing off the ground. He's going that hard. All right. You know, with work, like when you get started on work, maybe it's something new, it's actually pretty exciting, right? The hard work for a little bit is like, yes, this feels pretty good. I don't mind this. Oh, it's slowing a bit. Slowing a bit. Now, for a 10-year-old boy, doing something like this for a little while is pretty cool, but then it doesn't become fun anymore, right? He's waiting to get off that thing and go and jump some sweet jump down the hill and, uh, and plan not to crash at the same time. But, uh, but while he's going, yeah, he's still got a smile on his face. The back's arching a little bit more. The legs are getting tired. How you going there, Cardin? So <laughs> Now, if I let him keep going, this would turn from being productive and him working really hard to being completely unproductive. In fact, he'd probably injure himself, right? He'd probably do more damage than what he's actually doing good. The training that he's doing at the moment is probably helpful, but leave it go a long time, it's not really sustainable. Can you get the feeling of what this sort of vain work is like? You hear the hum of it. How you going? You done? <laughs> that is a good actor. All right. You can, you can pull up, mate. Good job. Give him a round of applause. Whew. You earned your drink. Let's hope those legs don't fail on the way up. <laughs> it's just not sustainable, right? When you work like that, maybe, maybe inside your head, it sounds like that. You know, like it just doesn't stop. And you get the feeling of this vain, pointless work. If I took this bike off the trainer, the rubber hits the road, right? The tyre hits the road, it gains some traction, you hope, and the bike actually goes somewhere. That becomes purposeful. Now, if he stayed on there, it wouldn't be purposeful. In fact, it would probably be unfruitful. And if you think about the way that we work, and you think about the way that our culture values that sort of work, uh, it can be completely unfruitful. Not only in what it produces, but also in what it produces in you um, as, a, as a person. Um, some people fear work and the difficulty it brings. There's a man, uh, a person in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13, which says this, The sluggard says, There's a lion outside! I shall be killed in the streets! And he's freaked out. So he doesn't go anywhere, right? He doesn't even get to his front door because he's freaked out that something out there is going to hurt him, so he does no work at all. He just stays inside and does his little thing inside. No productivity, uh, nothing helpful for anyone else. It's just fear. He, he doesn't want to work because he's afraid. Uh, some are lazy, like the person in Proverbs 19.24. This person is sitting on the couch. You can imagine this person sitting on a couch. Uh, and it says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. 
I just imagine corn chips and salsa. That's what I imagine. He buries his hand in the dish and his laziness has produced so much uh, lack of uh, muscle mobility that he can't even bring his hand from the dish back to his mouth, which is, is exactly what he wants. He wants the chips in the dish, but his arm won't bring it to his mouth, right? Because he's been sitting there so long doing no work. So you can see there's, there's people who fear work, there's people who just don't want to work and become sluggish and sluggard-like. Uh, some are workers. Now these people, I personally get sometimes jealous of. I just look at these people and like they work and they can balance it out and they seem to be productive in their work, they seem to get stuff done and what they do is really helpful to people. And, uh, and then they go home, and home looks pretty sweet, especially if you chuck stuff up on Facebook all the time. It's like, look at my home, it's amazing. Look at my kids, look at my wife. Everything's sweet. And you get this sort of idea that they just got this sweet life. But then you read Psalm 127, and it suggests that even they, they could be working in vain because it's not God doing the building. Even their work could be vain. Here's what Eugene Peterson says. I'll be quoting this guy a fair bit today. Um, He says this about work. Western culture takes up where Babel left off and defies human effort as such. You remember the story in Babel where they're building the tower and they think, yep, we're going to reach God here. We're going to build a tower high enough that it's going to reach up into the heavens. And so they work and work and work. God decides to shut the whole operation down, confuse all the languages and disperse them all over the place. Uh, And so... We take up where Babel left off. The machine is the symbol of this way of life, which attempts to control and manage. Technology promises to give us control over the earth and over other people, but the promise is not fulfilled. Lethal automobiles, ugly buildings, and ponderous bureaucracies ravage the earth and empty lives of meaning. Structures become more important than people who live in them. Machines become more important than the people who use them. And we care more for our possessions with which we hope to make our way in the world than with our thoughts and dreams which tell us who we are in the world. Make sense? You get this idea that stuff, buildings, become more important than people. And in the end, brings meaninglessness. Complete meaninglessness. In the psalm, do you notice how it moves from building to watching, to working, which are three very practical ventures, right? And even the fourth is partly practical. So they're all things that we do. Now, humans naturally tend towards doing things, all right? We enjoy doing things. We enjoy getting out and uh, gardening, for example, playing sport. We, we naturally enjoy doing things. Uh, but interesting that it moves from the physical and the practical to the heart because then it says, you eat the bread of anxious toil, my daughter alerted me to this uh, just last night. I don't know how it came up, but she asked me why I was staring. She's like, Daddy, why are you staring? I said, I wasn't staring. I, don't, I didn't realize I was staring. She goes, yeah, yeah, you do it every night at the dinner table. I thought, oh, what, what's going on? I didn't realize I was doing that. And then I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, sometimes I do get caught just looking over in the corner, eating my meal and thinking about, whatever deadline I need to meet (laughs) or thinking about what's happened during the day maybe it's a time I failed maybe it's a time uh, where someone wasn't happy with what I did maybe it's the time uh, the the work I have to do after dinner maybe it's the assignment I need to complete 
maybe it's the homework that needs to get done. Uh, and you sit there and you're sort of eating at the same time as inside. You're just anxious and, and restless. Uh, don't know if you've ever thought that. That's, uh, that's certainly been my, my little daughter was right. <laughs> but then the psalm turns, doesn't it? It turns and it says, he gives to his beloved sleep. And just pause here. <clears throat> this, is, this is interesting in our culture. There's plenty going on about how to get better sleep, right? There's plenty of pillows and beds and uh, magnetic devices and, uh, and things you can wear and tablets you can take that produce good sleep. And I'm not here to rag all those. I'm just saying it seems to be prevalent, right? That sleep is something valuable and uh, it's something that is meant to be enjoyed. But when you read this psalm, it's like the sweet sleep. You know that sleep that leaves the past in the past, leaves the future in the future, and knows that presently you can actually go to sleep and it's perfectly okay. Has anybody ever experienced that sort of sleep? It's like, yep, I know I can rest right now and I'm okay with that. And God's okay with that because the work's done for the day. I can leave it there. I can leave tomorrow's work for tomorrow and I can just rest right now. Now, the opposite has also been true, uh, obviously, because we all know that sometimes we don't sleep. Maybe it's a friendship issue at school. Maybe it's a, uh, an issue with your boss at school uh, or at work. Maybe it's a family issue and it just chogs and turns and turns and you work so hard through the night not sleeping. But God says, you're my beloved and I want to give you sleep. I want to give you sleep. So this leads to the second point. Taming your self-will. <clears throat> Building, watching, working and resting with God. You see, because the work that happens like was happening on this trainer is meaningless. It ends up being purposeless. And it's work without God because it all depends upon the person writing. And they go harder and harder and harder and harder. And it doesn't actually produce all that much good. Right? And so the, the reason for that little analogy was to show the type of work that can happen apart from God. Because we all know that work is not evil, right? We all know that work is actually good. Because in this psalm you see that God's working. God's building stuff. God's watching over. He's, he's like the night watchman. Even watching over the watchmen who are watching over the city, right? He's building. He's watching. He's actually allowing sleep because he's a good God. I want to ask you this question. How many times have you heard people say, I just want to get that balance, the life-work balance? Anybody heard that before? I've heard it so many times in conversations. And I'm often confused because I just, I don't know what that actually looks like. Like, has anybody actually got to the balance part where work's at one end, life's at the other, and you're standing in the middle and it's all balancing? But what happens if you run to life and you really work on the life part, the work part flips up on its head, right? And it gets out of control. But then you run to the other end, and you try to do the work thing and focus on it and get in under control, and the life part flips up on its end. And I just don't really understand how you can actually get to this nice, balanced work-life whole deal. But I think this psalm actually teaches us to do that. <clears throat> The curse of some people's work, says Eugene Peterson, 
so, sorry, people's lives is not work as such, but senseless work, vain work, futile work, work that takes place apart from God, work that ignores God. And I like says the what if then. Christian discipleship, by orienting us in God's work and setting us in the mainstream of what God is already doing, frees us from the compulsiveness of work. Hilary Poiters taught that every Christian must be constantly vigilant against what he called irreligiosa solicitude pro deo. There you go, little Latin for you. Meaning a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. You see how it moves from... Yes, I know God and I follow God. But there's a moment in which work becomes this uh, compulsive, obsessive thing that you you think about all the time, whether it's working uh, in the home, whether it's working at a job, whether it's working at school, in the classroom, uh, wherever it is that you are, this work becomes something that you just obsess over. And in the end, you end up taking over God's job because wherever you remove God uh, from your life, you end up taking over that, that, that part, right? Um, not that I think you can actually remove God, right? But you can turn your face away sort of thing and you end up being like God. You end up doing the work that actually God's meant to do. You end up uh, not resting because you're taking up the reign. It's like I, I need to have control over this thing. <clears throat> I often pray uh, with my children at night and I, I say this prayer, thank you that you are God and that I am not. Now they don't actually know it, but I'm actually praying it for my benefit just as much as their benefit <laughs> because I want them to understand how sweet it is that God's God and we're not, that I'm just a simple human being. And I'm a simple human being in light of God, but I'm just a simple human being. He's God. And we'll unpack that a little bit. Are you human? Do you sleep? Do you eat meals? Do you even, dare I say it, sit at the toilet? That's a human function, isn't it? Without a phone? Yep, these are all regular rhythms of life that are so messed up and twisted and confused by the way we, particularly in the West, try to live our lives as if we're some sort of superhuman Super organized, super efficient, super Google on my phone know-it-all, super multitasker, super text and drive at the same time, super, super, super. But then we come here and realize we're just human. (laughs) And that that is a really good thing. But what does it mean? How is it actually reflected in real life? Here's one way. I cannot be in more than one place at a time. You cannot be in more than one place at a time. Now, uh, Facebook or Skype would seem to want to make you think that you can be all over the place. You can be at that person's living room. You can be at that person's holiday. You can be on that person's uh, trip to the UK. You can be uh, talking to someone overseas, almost like you're there with them, right? But in reality, you're still physically right here. Now, I'm not... I mean... Anyone, you usually bring these things up as a preacher and everyone thinks you hate them. I don't hate them, um, not at all. I'm just saying it's sort of, they're sort of mechanisms that try to make you think you're not where you are. And they try to help you avoid being right where you are. Uh, and they're a constant distraction pulling you away. Even, even sending emails. I've been considering this. Like, why do I send an email to the guy next door when I could walk the 10 steps and go and talk to him, right? 
because that's actually far more valuable, uh, me connecting with a person, than just blank sending an email. Um, again, emails are helpful. I'm not saying that, but, uh, but it's helpful considering. I'm right here. He's right there. So let's be right here together. Uh, rather than being in this um, short mini conversations all the time. <clears throat> this can sometimes be the drive that comes from a heart that once it is apart from God, aims to be God. You become the rider going nowhere. Work can become meaningless, boring, monotonous, tiring and risking your very health because it happens apart from God. Uh, I read a poet uh, by the name of Cheslaw Maloz, and he wrote this poem called My Intention. This is just a particular verse out of the poem. And he says this, I am here. Those three words contain all that can be said. You begin with those words and you return to them. Here means on this earth, on this continent and no other. In this city and no other. In this epoch I call mine. This century, this year. I was given no other place, no other time, and I touched my desk to defend against the feeling that my own body is transient. This is all very fundamental, but after all, the science of life depends on the gradual discovery of fundamental truths. Isn't it true? So this guy actually, uh, the guy who wrote the book, actually grabs his desk at times to remind himself, I am right here. And this is the only place I can be. And that's a really good thing. As humans, as much as we would like to think we are in more than one place, at least in our minds, we can only ever be in one place. When we humbly accept that we are local and that God is the only one large enough to be global, fruitful work and rest can begin. Do you see? You, you come and take your rightful place in the order of the universe because the God of the universe is the one who's global. Now, internet makes you think everything's global. Right, And it's a helpful messenger, uh, but sometimes it can make you think that you're the one who needs to be God and getting everywhere and going everywhere and being everywhere all at the same time when it's just not possible. You're meant to be, you're created to be right where you are locally. Here's where the connecting part comes from. <clears throat> Remember at the start I talked about the connection between this work, God doing the work, God building, God working, God watching, uh, and, and us joining him in his work, and this whole thing of children, then it's like a switch. It's, it seems to be completely unrelated. Um, this guy, Eugene Peterson, brings out this point of effortless work. Uh, when I read this scripture, I am uh, very aware, and I've had conversations with many people, um, about the difficulty it is when you read a scripture like this that talks about children being a blessing from the Lord, particularly as a married couple who aim to have children, would love to have children, but just cannot have children. This can be really painful to read. Um, and so I wanted to be empathetic towards that, um, but at the same time, hopefully, draw your attention to the bigger picture going on. Because sometimes that can cause... Uh, just as much sleepless anxiety uh, than the person working hard at their job. This particular desire can, can be the anxious bread, uh, the, the toil of anxious bread that you eat um, as you continually think about this, and it's really difficult. It's just really difficult. Um, and so let me say I've, I'm, I'm thinking about you and I want to bring hope towards that at the end. Here's what uh, Eugene Peterson says. 
I'll read verse 3, 4, and 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So in a sense, this uh, psalmist is saying, look around you, behold, children uh, are precious. Children are precious. Um, Our culture would suggest sometimes that children are not precious, uh, that children need to be sort of pushed down and squashed down and put in a corner so that they don't bother us anymore. Um, That's not what God's saying here in his word. He's saying they're they're a blessing. They're, They're a real gift. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In contrast to the anxious labor that builds cities and guards possessions, the psalm praises the effortless work of making children. Opposed to the strenuous efforts of persons who, in doubt of God's providence and mistrust of human love, seek their own gain by godless struggles is the gift of children. Born not through human effort, but through the miraculous processes of reproduction which God has created among us. What do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we call our work. The character of our work is shaped not by accomplishments or possessions, but in the birth of relationships. Children are God's best gift. So you see, he makes this comparison here between this godless work, the work apart from God, to this effortless work of uh, making babies, making children. Um, that God has put in the order of the universe um, so that uh, children can be born. And it seems to be almost an effortless uh, pursuit. Um, it doesn't take a lot of work. And he tries to draw out this whole idea that when you're working with God, you know, like God's or- the stream of God's work is already flowing. All you need to do is jump in and, and go with the stream, work with the stream because he's already at work. It's almost like that work becomes uh, effortless. You know, I think there's one mark of someone who uh, works this way, and that is joy. They have joy in their work. Because of this seemingly effortless way that they do it, it doesn't mean they don't work hard, it doesn't mean they don't uh, labor and strive after what God's given them to do, um, but it does mean that it's, it's almost effortless, and there's a joy about that. There's a contentment because they sleep well at night. Not because they're working on their own and doing all the things that they think they need to do. They're working with God. Suddenly, it's starting to orient around God and and work becomes a joy. He keeps going and says this, For it makes very little difference how much money Christians carry in their wallets or purses. It makes little difference how our culture values and rewards our work. If God doesn't, for our work creates neither life nor righteousness. Relentless, compulsive work habits, which our society rewards and admires, are seen by the psalmist as a sign of weak faith and assertive pride, as if God could not be trusted to accomplish his will, as if we could rearrange the universe by our own effort. But this begs the question still, right? If God is at work, then what's he working on? Right? If God is building, if God is watching over what he's building, what is it that he's working on? And how do we get to join him and work together with him on what he is doing? Because it seems that working with God is far greater joy. There's far greater health in working with God than working apart from God, apart from his ways. So what's he building? 
He's watching over and building an eternal kingdom. In part, this is a mystery, right? Because usually what God builds is uh, not visible to the naked eye. The product is, like the change in people's lives and the way that he orders creation, the product is visible, but the way that he works is, is like invisible. Um, but nonetheless, Jesus says he is building a kingdom. And who is in this kingdom? Well, there's a king, we know that. In this kingdom, there's a king and his name's Jesus. And in this kingdom, there's people. And they're the people that are sitting right here. They're the people that are sitting at the desk next to you. They're the neighbor sitting in their house next door. They're the person at the shopping center. They're your classmates sitting next to you beside you in the desk. Uh, That's the people who are either in God's kingdom or who you ought to be drawing towards God's kingdom, right? And that becomes a whole new focus for the work around us. Point three. Rest for the wicked no more. You know that first uh, comment I made, that there's no rest for the wicked, right? As frustrating as that is, I actually think uh, there is rest, rest for the wicked, but it's for the wicked who are wicked no more, right? Because they no longer serve just themselves. They no longer serve just the, uh, the earthly pursuits, what is finite. They actually serve him who is infinite, and his name is Jesus. Jesus restores the wicked by his hard work, which was far from vain. Jesus' death on the cross shows us that hard work is good because that was no easy task, right? That was no easy task for Jesus to, uh, to carry that cross, to, uh, to be put to death on that cross. But what that work brought about was infinite change in the entire universe. Infinite change in the entire universe and in the lives of people who are the very people putting him to death. Do you see where the priority changes now? It's not just about building a building, building a house, building a, um, a kingdom that's here on the earth. It's actually working for something that's far less visible but eternal. When verse 2 speaks of sleep, the psalmist is speaking of the sleep presently, which brings true rest at the end of our daily labors, And at the end of our life, he actually talks about the sleep that comes in death. Every person here dies, and that isn't for the Christian. That's not something to fear, because you enter into eternal rest. You don't enter into eternal uh, torment and restless, anxious work. You enter into rest, not because of how good you are, but instead of how good Jesus is, and the good work, the hard work that he's accomplished at the cross. This doesn't depend firstly on our work, but firstly on this precious work of Jesus who gives to us his righteousness. I'm going to pause here and play a quick game. In my class, I teach year five here at the school, and we have this thing called a Bible challenge. I have two of my students here, if they're still here. No, maybe they're gone. Uh, There's one here. You know what a Bible challenge is, Dean. So what happens is I give the scripture, and whoever has a Bible... Uh, looks that up and the first person to find it has to stick the Bible open on their head to show me that they found it and then they get to read it out. Does anyone want to join me here? Can I, any volunteers? You can use your phone. Yeah, yeah, it is. I know, isn't it, Caleb? Terrible. Uh, if you've got a Bible and you're faster than the phone, I, no, I won't say that. I was going to say it might get you into heaven, but that's not true. It's not true. All right. Um, 
Here we go. We usually start with the Bible shut. <laughs> Ready? Isaiah 64, verse 5. Isaiah 64, verse 5. Oh, Dave's got it. Mr. Birding. Isaiah 64, verse 5. Yes, yes, yes. That's good. Wonderful. Okay. Dave, would you be able to read it for us? Right through to verse... uh, Right through to verse 8. Now, this scripture in particular hones in on this whole idea that the work... I mean, the righteousness... The right standing and the peace that we find with God is not uh, because of our own doing. All right? Uh, Let's have a read. Isaiah 64, verse 5 to 8. So there's this uh, idea in here that uh, we collectively, as in humans, end up being like uh, the unclean, uh, with the unclean garment on, uh, because of this sin that, that diseases our life. All right? The intentions with which we work become God-less uh, so that we're working apart from God. The intentions with which we, uh, which we look after people even become God-less and, and end up being focused on ourselves. And so... Uh, you see the people here longing. It's like, we've gone this long, this far, and worked so hard. Will you save us now, God? You, you know when you get to the end of like a really hard day and you've worked really hard? Maybe uh, you're a mum and you're looking after your kids at home and, uh, and it's just been a long day and you go, I've worked so hard on my own for so long. Uh, really? Are you going to save me now, God? <laughs> Maybe not. Like there's a bit of hesitation there, right? Or maybe you've worked at your job so long and so hard and, uh, and you're getting to the end and it's all a mess and you go, really, God, are you going to save me now? And then it keeps going. We've all become like one who is unclean. You're not on your own, all right? You're not on your own in this. We've all got uh, this sin, the unrighteous deeds, like a p- polluted gar- garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. It's like I'm too far in. I'm too deep here. I've gone so hard so long, I don't know how to get out. I'm swimming. I'm drowning. And then it says right at the end, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We're the clay. Does the clay do any work? No. The potter does the work. He shapes the clay. He looks after it. He, He makes something absolutely incredible and beautiful. And so you see this shift from you being the guy on the bike, riding to nowhere, working hard, going hard, to being the potter. Uh, sorry, to being the, the, the clay in the hands of a good potter who's molding and shaping and turning your life so that what is produced out of you is such good. 
it bears such good fruit. So for the wicked who trust in him and his work, there's going to be rest. There's going to be rest. It was no accident, you know, that Jesus summed up all the commandments by saying, love God with all of your heart. We talked about the heart, like it gets anxious. It stares off in the distance, distracting you from even the people sitting around you. Your heart gets anxious with all your soul, with all your mind. The cog's just going over and over and over and over and you can't stop thinking. Love God with all of that and with all your strength. But then he says, love your neighbor. You see, this psalm helps to reorient you about the whole life purpose of what you're here to do. I'm hoping that as we unpack this, this this whole attitude that my work is actually meant to be, whether I'm in year five at TCC, whether I'm in high school, whether I work a part-time job, whether I work a full-time job, whether I'm at home looking after my children, every part of your work is meant to fall into this whole idea of worship. It's not independent of God. You've been running too long independent of God and it's not meant to be that way. You're not made to do that on your own. And so Jesus said, love God and worship him with all you are and then love your neighbor. I had a conversation with a student in my class and we were doing a maths problem and uh, this particular um, problem, this student couldn't actually work out how they were going to be able to use this in the rest of their life. And so already you see this sort of disease of thinking that um, I'm only here to get work done so I can get a job, because the conversation continued down this sort of track, get a job and earn good money. Who here is uh, getting good money and working a job that knows it can become meaningless? Anybody know that? I know that. I've worked, I could work in a Christian school and know that. Right, Because it can become meaningless if it's completely apart from God. Now it finds its meaning. The very things that you do each day find their meaning in this core that you're loving God with everything that you are and you're loving your neighbor. So I could be a person serving coffee at Macca's and loving the people who I serve or loving my workmates. I could be the person working in a school and teaching because I want to bless these students, not because I need to be a great teacher and everyone needs to look at me and my planning and my units and whatever else. Uh, If I'm a student, I can work hard knowing that as I learn, I then get to go and bless the people next to me who can learn. That's me worshipping God and loving my neighbour. Whatever it is that God's given you to do right now in this local space that you're living in, you can actually do with these two core things. So I teach my kids in year five, think this way. Don't think I've got to get good money and find a job somewhere. That becomes meaningless. You get to the end of that and still think, why did I do that, right? What brings meaning to who you are and what you do is these two very things. It's the way that you love God and the way you love people through what you do. That brings meaningful uh, work and meaningful rest. But what might it look like? Two practical ways. Number one is this. Consider the natural world. Uh, We've already considered the effortless work of uh, making children, right? The way that God's ordered the natural universe 
uh, is, is almost an effortless thing, but such a miraculous thing on his behalf. Another is this. The natural world has daylight and nighttime, right? So at daylight, the daylight God meant to be for work and nighttime was meant to be for rest. Now, we live in a 24-7 sort of culture, don't we? Where technology and phones and TV and computers mean that we could be going all night long if we like. We don't have to switch off. We could go and go and go and go and go. And look where that's got our culture. <laughs> Most people are unhappy because of this perpetual idea that I can keep going, I can keep working, I can keep going, and it's not going to affect me. I'll do this. I'm strong. I'm powerful. <clears throat> sleep naturally says God my work is done for this day your work will keep going you don't batter an eyelid and I can trust that you'll give me what I need for tomorrow that's what happens when you sleep you sort of go into this dependent state a vulnerable state I've heard Pete talk about this you become totally vulnerable when you're asleep right but you know you're in good hands the hands of a good God who's watching over you <clears throat> Number two is this, the inbuilt weekly rest. It's funny that God had to command that we rest, right? Uh, but clearly he knew that it was going to be important. He said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, this is just one of the commandments. And again, this can be challenging in our culture because stuff's open 24-7. Shops are open seven days a week, all right? Uh, but it's meant to be that you don't work all seven days. God, did never, God never intended that, but instead to honour the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It can be just a simple act of obedience. Gathering to worship with the church, you're declaring that God and his building is the foundation on which you build. It's tempting to think that you can just keep going seven days through. And God commands that on this day, all your usual work will cease. On this day, you get to orient back to God and you realise that you're just human. It's a marvellous self-will tamer, right? Because in your self-will, you think, I could earn a few extra dollars. <laughs> I could get a few more jobs done and be ready for the week. I could do this. I, I could do a little bit more of my assignment and have it done before the teacher's even, teacher's even ready for it. I could work a little bit harder. I could get a few more jobs done. You, you get the idea? And you don't, you don't actually rest at all. And God says, no, no, no. I want to remind you that I'm God and you're human and it's good for you to rest. Not just rest and have a sleep, but rest in me. So you come and you hear the word preached, rejuvenates your soul, and you prepare yourself for the week to come. So that you can work hard and you can rest daily. And then on the seventh day, enjoy the rest. Both sleep and Sabbath are totally enjoyable when you've worked diligently and faithfully with your good Lord throughout each day and week. He wants to restore you out of your superhumanness to being human, truly human. In humility, you consider weakness your strength because of his great power at work in you. In humility, you're not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought in relation to what you think you can accomplish. You accept this wonderful part of your finiteness and that you're allotted boundaries in life. You sleep, you rest. There's evening time, there's toilet stops. You hold the edge of your desk, you Sabbath each week. You sunrise for your work and the sunset is a sign to cease your work, that you're not limitless, but you do know the limitless one, right? And so you pause and think about these daily sort of rhythms that are already set for you. 
It's not like you have to try and work out a great scheme for stopping. It's like, I don't know, the sun goes down. That's a sign for you to pull up. (laughs) Now, there's busy times, yes. Uh, There's pressure times, yes. And you can still work hard and find rest in those times. But for that to be the long haul, uh, there might be some problems. Maybe you go to God and go, God, you say to do this, help me. And that's you worshipping God with all your heart. That's you saying, God, I'm, I'm limited. I'm finite. I'm not a superhuman. <clears throat> and that is a really good thing. I'd like to invite you to three particular prayers. And then we'll move on to communion. The first is uh, the Lord's Prayer. And this is a prayer that I've been learning to pray habitually. Now, um, my mum has, uh, has heard this prayer over and over and over as she was growing up. And for her, it became a real difficulty to pray because it was just like a, a religious tick. Like, I've done that for the day. All right, everything should be sweet. But as you let this be your heart's cry, it orients the start of your day. It orients the end of your day and helps to point your heart in the right direction. It gets you set uh, thinking about what's most meaningful even in relation to your work. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you pause there. Go, wow. Our Father. He's not just my Father, he's our Father. The collective Father of the whole church in the entire world. He's the Father in heaven who put Jupiter next to the moon last night. Did anybody see that? How cool is that? A planet hugely larger than our planet. And here it is, just sitting there, nice and bright beside the moon. That's the Father in heaven. He did that. That's amazing. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pause here. Okay, God, today is actually about your kingdom. Not building my kingdom. Not building my will and what I want to get done. It's actually about your kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. I can only function on what you give me today, God. This day I don't function, I don't get through this day unless you provide for me. Please give me the bread that I need today to do everything you want me to do. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Because I know there's going to be people who could hurt me today. I know that I'm going to hurt you today, God. Please forgive me of my sins. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil of meaningless, godless work. Deliver us from the evil and the temptation to think that we are superhuman or mini-gods. Because that's going to be faulty all over. So I invite you, maybe you choose that prayer. Make it a habitual cry of your heart as you go about your day's business. The second one is this. This one is by a guy called George Dawson. Um, It's a a Jesuit prayer. The Jesuits are a uh, line or a priesthood within the Roman Catholic Church um, of males. Uh, However, I found this prayer and and it it seems to be really helpful. So um, feel free to, uh, I can put it up on the city if you like or, or come and see me after says this, Lord, as we go to our work this day, help us to take pleasure therein. Isn't that different to like, oh, help me through this day, Lord. 
This is going to be a drag. <laughs> this is going to be terrible. God, you've given me stuff to do today. Help me to take pleasure in that. Show us clearly what our duty is. Help us to be faithful in doing it. May all we do be well done, fit for your eye to see. You see here, you're not actually working just for the eyes of the people around you. You're not actually working just for the, uh, for the boss in charge of you. You're actually working before the eyes of God. May all we do be well done, fit for thine eye to see. Give us enthusiasm to attempt, patience to perform. When we cannot love our work, may we think of it as thy task and make what is unlovely beautiful through loving service. For thy, thy name's sake, amen. So perhaps that's a prayer that it's sort of an offensive prayer, right? It's like, I'm ready, God, but I can't do this day without you. I can't do this work without you. God, help me in this. I want to be about your work today. It's an offensive prayer. This one's more of a defensive prayer. And perhaps it's for the tired person, the, the person who's working relentlessly. You're working to the bone and there seems to be no way out. There seems to be no hope. And you are absolutely ragged in this sense of work. Uh, psalm 25 says this. This isn't the full psalm, but, uh, but a certain part of it. Verses 1 through 9. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Notice how waiting actually, it, it means stopping. And this is hard when you're in a cycle of relentless work that doesn't ever stop, right? But nonetheless, so important. Uh, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. That's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> when you're just so smashed when you're just so tired. It's hard to believe that God is good and upright. But this helps you too, right? When you confess with your mouth, man, it helps to change what you're thinking. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Well, hold on, I'm not on my own because there's lots of people working like this. And they need the good news that he's a good Lord. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 